welcome to Visibility Radio. Now, I am so excited. We're doing a new series, a six-part series on all things digital and all things accessible. In this day and age, everyone says technology is all around us. It prevails in all different spheres of life and it's supposed to add to the quality of our life. But what happens if you're blind? Is it accessible? Well, I have the perfect guest and I'm excited to have him here. He's none other than Dr. Scott Hollier and he is at the forefront at the cutting edge of adaptive technology. Welcome, Dr. Scott Hollier. Thank you, Kenneth. It's wonderful to have a chance to have a chat with you. Now, we're going to do this series and we've got six episodes and we're going to begin at the very beginning, I suppose, if you will. And I have to say to the listeners that I also have in Scott a real authority on Star Trek. So beam us up, Scotty. (laughs) Oh no, my secret's out. (laughs) Right. So today we're talking about the general perceptions about technology, adaptive technology in the digital space. Perhaps maybe we can begin with talking about digital technology and what it's doing in the space of vision impairment. Well, I think one thing that's really exciting, Kenneth, is that if we were to go back in time, say, 20 years ago, if you wanted to be able to use a computer or a mobile device, it would be really challenging to do so. And that's mainly because of products not having built-in assistive technologies. So if you were blind or vision impaired, say, the mid-1990s, You would have needed to have bought a very expensive computer. You would have needed to have then spent thousands of dollars on assistive technology to try and make that computer work. And often they weren't very stable either. So you'd often end up spending about $4,000 at that time to try and get some basic access that probably wasn't very reliable. And I think what's really exciting today as we look at how things have evolved, uh, focusing on perceptions, is that The perception back then was that we had this cutting-edge technology that was really uh, supporting and just starting to um, make technology accessible. Today, I think we can virtually say um, that we can take for granted that the technology should be accessible. And as new products come out now, they are generally accessible and have accessibility features. And when they're not, we get upset about it because it's such a a typical and, and normal thing to have. So it's really exciting, I think, to see that that perception of the provision of technology has changed. It shouldn't be expensive anymore because it should be built in. So that's one feature of accessibility, isn't Mm. it? Getting past the financial outlay. Absolutely. And that's probably uh, one of the biggest things that's changed now. I mean, as I was saying, if we wanted to use, say, a screen reader as a person who's uh, blind getting access to a computer back in the 90s, we were talking $2,000 just for that software. Now we can buy a $60 Android tablet on eBay and that screen reader should be built in. So that's a, that's a great difference and a, a really different expectation. Now, let's talk about the uses of adaptive technology and the digital developments here. Not everyone has grown up with technology around them. If we're talking about the slightly older person in mind, how do you think that would present itself? Is it one of, oh, ouch, that's really painful, don't want to go there, it's too difficult, maybe I'll just stick with Braille and struggle and muddle through with what I've always known? Well, I think to um, start with, it's probably worth just quickly highlighting what some of those uh, technologies are for people who might not be aware. So 
when it comes to supporting people who are blind or vision impaired, there's three main things that we uh, look at in devices. So the first one is the screen reader, which for people not familiar is basically a text-to-speech software application that will convert information in a computer or a device into audio. Audio can be adjusted. Uh, we also talk about a screen magnifier when we can uh, zoom into parts of a screen, like if you're using Windows, you can zoom in and, and see certain parts of it to help make it more uh, clear on the screen. And the other one is we can adjust the colors of things so we can have high contrast themes. And Kenneth, coming to your question about uh, the ease of use and I guess and how foreign or easy it is for these things to learn, I think the thing that's really changed now is that before you were limited to the device. Uh, so back in the 1990s, mobiles were just starting to um, pop up, but basically you needed to use a computer. It, that computer probably needed to be Windows, and you were limited by the choices you had. I think the thing that really helps people today, which is just starting to embark on this journey of trying to use assistive technologies and getting familiar with these products, is that you have such a great choice of device. If you find it easier to use Windows, you can use Windows and these features are built in. If you find it easier to use a Mac, you can use a Mac and these features are built in. You might find it easier using an iPad or maybe an Android tablet or a smartphone. And even things like the Apple Watch have these things built in. So I think what's great for people just looking at this space now, perhaps as sight is deteriorating and going, okay, well, What's easiest for me? What are my options? Well, it might be the case that the iPads, for example, is the easiest thing that people feel comfortable with and they can use that. So I think the great thing is we don't just have choice of what type of assistive technology we can use, but we have choice of device. So whatever's more comfortable, that's the one you can use because assistive technology is already there. Right. Now let's talk about applications. With all of this coming up, it's got to be directed towards some sort of application on a practical and a daily basis. How are these things being applied in daily life for different people who are at different stages of their their lives? I think the great thing is that depending on what your needs are, you do have some flexibility. And again, device is a factor here. So uh, I did some research uh, not so long ago uh, looking at different ways people engage at different um, age groups. And what was interesting is that for seniors, I'd often gravitate towards um, still a more traditional Windows computer for their um, email and for web browsing, but would like the flexibility of an iPad to just do some basic things when they're um, on the go. And when it comes to students and people in the workforce, they'd often prefer an Android-based smartphone with a cheap Windows tablet to give them that flexibility. But for parents with young children, they really liked the very cheap tablets because ultimately they could give them to the kids and if they got broken, they didn't cost too much to replace. And they could use things like Google Chromecast where they could stream things to their TV, but also be able to mirror their own device on the TV. So if they couldn't see the screen on a phone or a tablet very well, they could actually blow it up into um, 60-inch glory on a, on a giant TV. And again, these Devices aren't very expensive. If you want to have that feature where you can show the contents of your phone on the TV, you just need the phone itself and a $50 Google Chromecast plugged into your TV. So we're seeing that different groups, depending on what their needs are in daily living, um, will use devices in slightly different ways. Certainly those themes of connectivity and ease of access uh, are there across it. Hmm. Now, you've also spoken a lot about apps and these are coming out fast and furious. What do you think they are doing in breaking down the barriers and promoting accessibility? 
I think apps make a huge difference, and it does depend a bit on how well those apps are designed. So if we look at our two main platforms with apps being iOS devices like the iPhone and the iPad and Android-based devices, uh, it all really depends on how those apps are designed and then what their benefits are for accessibility. There's an international standard, um, and I think we'll talk about this more as the series progresses, called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG, version 2.0. And this standard basically provides guidance as to how developers can build apps in an accessible way. So we have the knowledge on how to make the apps accessible. Assuming the apps are accessible, then there's a whole stack of great things which are happening out there now. So as a really good example, Google Maps has completely changed uh, the way that people are able to navigate, to understand their environment. I have one on my Android smartphone called ID, E-Y-E-D, and that app is almost like a Swiss army knife of features, so I can find out at any time where I am. So if I'm not sure I'm exactly where I am, it will immediately give me the address of the closest point I'm at. Uh, it will scan objects and tell me uh, what those objects are. It'll be able to decipher text in an image, um, and it will also be able to tell me things like where the closest ATM is or where food is, certainly given I'm a bit into junk food. Knowing how close a Mac is is very <laughs> useful, and it can then push that information to Google Maps and guide me there. So I think probably the really fundamental benefit of apps now is that if you're connected, then you can always know where you are, you can get access to information in the environment around you, and you can do things like, for example, I have to... Um, travel soon uh, interstate and I'll be staying in a hotel. Now in the past if I wanted to order from room service or get some food or something that would be a, a difficult challenge. Now I can use an app to either go out and get food or I can use that same app to scan the uh, room service menu and I can uh, confidently call up and make an order. So this is this is the difference only just in the past few years. Right. We know that technology is pervasive. It's basically penetrated every aspect of life. But give us a fundamental look at where this technology occurs, i.e. what sort of devices carry the different technologies that promotes accessibility? Is it just on mobile phones or is it just on laptops? Where does it present itself? I think the great thing is that these boundaries are always being pushed and uh, when I do give workshops and presentations on accessibility, I'm always updating my slides as to uh, what devices have what. But broadly speaking, you can have confidence that Windows, Mac, iOS devices like iPhone and iPad and Android-based devices um, have those three core accessibility features of screen reader, screen magnifier and high contrast themes available. Or if um, they're not built into the device, you can get them very, very easily. And so this gives us a lot of confidence that we know we can get these devices and we'll have a lot of choice. But what's really exciting is that as new devices come out, as we start to move into the space of things like wearables and the Internet of Things and other things, we're, we're seeing more and more that these features are just part of the device. I mean, a good example is that it wasn't that long ago when the iPhone X was released and there was a huge thing around that and uh, the implications of changing the interface and things. But right out of the box, Apple already had accessibility built in to make sure that even though they were introducing very new features of how to unlock your phone using um, your face and other things, there were still uh, mechanisms in place to support people who are blind or vision impaired. And I think that's the great thing, you know. The perception before was that accessibility was a bolt-on thing, that's something that uh, you, you get the product out first and then you figure out how to make it accessible. 
But these days, it's exciting that uh, it's not a bolt-on thing anymore. When a new product comes out, we expect it to be accessible, and for the most part, it is. And I think that's really the difference now. Right. Now, you said that there are standards coming out, and we're going to be speaking a little bit more about those standards as we progress through the series on a later episode. But give us a sense of where the world is. Are we all on the same page in working out the accessibility issues or other countries or other communities a little bit ahead of the curve? And what do you think can we learn from their experience? I think what's encouraging is that whilst countries are at different levels of looking at accessibility and different stages of uh, embracing this issue, uh, there is guidance in the international community in terms of producing international standards to support. So essentially for a person who is blind or vision impaired to get access to technology, two key things have to happen. The first is that you need accessibility features such as assistive technologies on the device of your choice so that um, things like screen readers and magnifiers and high contrast themes, we need to make sure that they're on the device we want when we need them. And so that's part one. Part two is that content needs to be designed in a way that works with those features. There's no point having a screen reader on your uh, phone if you open up an app and the app just reads out as unlabeled button um, or, you know, or nothing at all. And... I've come across a few of those already. Absolutely. So for that, we turn to the international standards. And I think what is encouraging is that whilst different countries are at different stages of implementing it, um, the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, do have that uh, WCAG2 standard. And right now, it's an exciting time because those standards are, after being fairly stagnant for nearly 10 years, and because the standards worked quite well, um, that's been a good thing. Just now, as technology has evolved to that next level, standards are being updated again, and that will ensure that developers have guidance on catering for new and emerging devices. So, you know, once we get those two parts of the puzzle right, those two sides of the coin being the provision of accessibility features and content design for those features, then it equals independence. And I think that's the exciting message, and certainly the international community is aware of that. As to how individual countries implement that, um, it does vary a lot from country to country. And it's interesting to um, reflect on that and think about, okay, what is possible and how much is being done in practical terms. Right. Now, I want to go on to talk a little bit about this whole question of accessibility, incorporating mobility as well. One of the things that we are limited to or limited by is being able to reach different physical or geographies. The simplest idea that comes up right now is this whole thing of the driverless cars. Does that fall into the realm of accessibility? And if it does, where do you think it's going to take us? I think it absolutely falls into the realm of accessibility. I think there's uh, a lot of people who are blind vision impaired which are cheering the the day that uh, the driverless car arrives and we can uh, easily go wherever we want. We can uh, also have different choices about where we live. Some of us will choose to live near public transport at the moment because that's the only way to get around. So we will have different choices about where we live, how we get about. And ultimately, I think it'll be really beneficial. However, there are important things to consider. And again, coming back to international standards, one of the reasons why there is new standards development is because we need to answer the questions of how do we interact with that driverless car? What mechanism will there be for us to know that that car door is open, for us to get in, to give instructions to the car? 
to make sure that when we get in off at the other end, it drops us somewhere safely, not on a slope or, um, you know, in, in water or something unexpected. So <laughs> we need to have mechanisms in place to say, okay, well, if someone with a disability does approach a driverless car, for example, what processes will be in place to ensure that person not just has a safe journey, because uh, that will be the nature of a driverless car that the journey is largely taken care of, but what about getting in, getting out, and actually interacting with that driverless car? Um, what are our options there, depending on different types of disabilities? So these benefits will only work if accessibility is considered right from the start. And it is exciting. Part of my role, and again, we'll talk more about this as uh, these go on, but um, I have a role with W3C in the uh, creation of web standards and these next generation web standards. And it is exciting to see that even at this very early stage before driverless cars become a, a normal thing. And another aspect of this is uh, single-person drones. Um, this is another one that's being explored where rather than driving, you pack yourself into a drone and the drone takes you to where you want to go. So there's a bit of out-of-the-box thinking uh, going on as well. And again, accessibility needs to be considered. And it is exciting that uh, the international community is looking at all these options. Right. Now, I want to move on to something that is really important to every one of us, whether or not to wear blind or otherwise. It's called the media, the fourth estate as we all know it. Now, media is often seen as something we consume, but in the age of digital technology and social media, we're both consumers as well as contributors to media. How does accessibility and these new fandangle, if you will, technologies contributing to full participation in social media? I think social media has a really important role to play, but it's a role that's still being discovered, I think. You know, we see in uh, more traditional media that, you know, the pros and cons of social media, that sometimes it can be extremely useful and sometimes um, it can be seen as a, as a platform for people to anonymously uh, give others a hard time. You know, there is a balance, I think, that needs to be reached. But to focus specifically on disability, there are certainly benefits to social media. I think some of the things that it can really help people is that it helps avoid isolation when you're connected in with the community online. It can also help provide advice and a lot of people use social media like Facebook, like Twitter to keep up with things that are going on. Just recently I was talking to some people about the uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme and some intrepidation about what's coming up with their processes in that and they've turned to things like Facebook to learn from other people's experiences as to how to navigate those waters. So social media can be useful in that regard. I think what's really encouraging about social media is that the accessibility of it has improved vastly from um, some of its initial launches. I did a, a big research project back in 2012 looking at the emergence of, of popular social media tools then. And when you compare them from then to now, accessibility has just gone leaps and bounds. So the websites are largely accessible, the apps are largely accessible, and there's lots of accessibility features within these tools. So I think it has a really big role to play. I think one of the best stories relating specifically to vision impairment was a man um, that was in his 50s and he was trying to find a job and he loved tools like LinkedIn because he was able to effectively keep up with his area of expertise and keep in those discussions, put his CV online and he still felt even though he didn't have a job at that time, he could still participate in his chosen field and I think there's things like that which just perhaps wouldn't have been possible um, before social media, and there are certainly some benefits there. So do you think companies like Facebook and Twitter 
when they get down to ground zero of product development or product design, are they already putting in the ideas of accessibility at that level? I think it's just happening now. I think in the hardware and the more polished companies which have been around a long time, like your Apples and your Microsofts, they have got that almost from the ground, right back in the concept stage. Social media companies are still fairly new, and I think there's a bit of a um, push-and-pull mentality, I think, between getting something to market and actually considering accessibility. But I think certainly there's a law in the US and uh, legislative frameworks that help to give them a bit of a kick along in this area, and I think that's uh, something that they've discovered when they haven't considered these issues, and that's helpful. I think it also gives them a, um, a wider user base. And when you're someone like Facebook, which your plan is complete world domination, to miss out on 20% of the population because of disability, that's a big group of people. And I think that's also a uh, good motivator for them to make sure that no one misses out. You're absolutely right. Now, just looking at the time horizon ahead of us, where do you think the next five years will find ourselves um, in terms of promoting accessibility and breaking down whatever barriers are ahead of us? Well, I think there's going to be a combination of things which will come together. And, uh, you know, we may expand on some of this as we go along um, in the other talks. But I think we'll see improvements in technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality and how they will benefit us in terms of accessibility. Certainly the Internet of Things, we're just at the cusp of this now, and this is going to be a huge thing for people with disability going forward. Uh, and certainly for people who are blind or vision impaired in particular. And also, I think as we see these standards develop, these new versions of uh, WCAG, the next one's WCAG 2.1, due about mid-next year, and then there's one called Codename Silver as a long-term guideline. As these come into play, developers will have more guidance on how to make things accessible. I think there's um, a lot of exciting things ahead. And from a point of view of a user, now, sometimes we think that the manufacturers and the developers have got to have a crystal ball ahead of them. But they can only figure out what's needed if people come forward and say, these are the things that are causing me some distress. These are the things that are holding me back. How do you think we as a community of people with a form of disability can become more proactive and self-advocate in a sense that we can actually assist the whole process of accessibility? I think there's a few different paths that can be taken. Um, for example, you know, we're doing this recording here in Visibility, and uh, that's a great organisation that uh, has a lot of expertise in the area of technologies and um, what is possible for people. So there's training and other things available in uh, service provider organisations to help people uh, make the most of what's out there now. I think also when products do turn up, if they don't meet the needs of people with disability, there's a great opportunity to provide feedback. And um, more and more these days, I mean, Windows 10, for example, has a help and feedback thing, which that used to only be included in, you know, very um, secret developer builds of Windows. But now you can provide feedback pretty much any time. And that's becoming more the norm that you do have the option to give feedback. So if something doesn't work for you, by all means, give feedback. We've just seen recently the addition of being able to control windows um, through eye control by uh, blinking and staring in different directions, which may not be that helpful for people who are blind or vision impaired, but it just shows that uh, these products do continue to evolve as they get feedback on them. And I think the third is that people can volunteer to be involved in the creation of international standards. And as I saying, I um, am involved in a group to help progress international standards, and so it's really rewarding to see that uh, I can do research and I can 
use my skills to contribute to that and that will in turn um, make a difference as well. So lots of opportunities for different organisations and different people to get involved in different ways. So Scott, you're involved in consultancy on many things concerning accessibility and adaptive digital technology and you host focus groups. What are perhaps the most pressing needs that have been expressed? I think in Australia, to be specific for us, I think the NDIS is the one thing that uh, really is getting people asking the question, well, what technologies do I need, given I'm going to go through a process with the NDIS to determine uh, what my needs are, um, how that relates to my goals, what is available to me, how can I best make the most of that process? And a lot of the benefits of that will involve getting access to different technologies. So I think the NDIS has been a big catalyst in people picking up something because my uh, my wife or my friend or my parent or son might be uh, using something like this. I think people are now looking more and more at the case of, okay, well, I will have certain needs and I need to prepare for that. Um, what technologies are out there that are going to support me? And so I think from that point of view, the question has changed a bit and that's becoming a, a real focus for starting this technology discussion. Fantastic. Now, as we venture out to answer all these questions, stay with us for the next episode where we will talk about internet security. And until we meet you again, this is Kenneth Poir on behalf of Dr. Scott Hollier saying, see you soon. This episode was edited by Matthew Clark.